Now, anybody who was alive during the Retrovirus Conference probably heard something about prevention, and our next speaker, Dr. Connie Kellum from the University of Washington, is one of the experts on biomedical prevention and prevention in general, and she's here today to give us an update on the potential for antiretroviral-based prevention. Dr. Kellum? Well, it's a real pleasure to be here in the land of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and to tell you about some of the exciting results over the last few years. I have to say, for a long-term survivor of um, multiple biomedical prevention attempts that haven't worked, we actually now do have approaches that have, I think, great potential. So, first of all, I think it's always important when you talk about prevention to remind ourselves of the scope of what we're dealing with, that a sobering 33 million uh, persons live with HIV globally. Two-thirds of them are in Africa, and we still are seeing a large number of new infections. Uh, 2.7 million new infections are estimated to occur each year, and 90, a little over 90% of these occur in Africa. And the majority of infections in adults globally are heterosexually acquired. So when we think about trying to tackle the area of uh, this, this huge challenge of prevention, we have to remember that although scale-up of treatment is going to be hugely important and as part of prevention, that we also need primary prevention strategies. So I will try to bridge what I'm talking about between Africa and the U.S., but over the last, probably last decade, increasingly it's become apparent from a number of national surveys that a large number, some estimate the majority of new infections in Africa occur in stable, cohabiting, serodiscordant couples in which one partner has HIV and the other does not. Studies that we and others have done have found that for each couple in Africa where one partner has HIV, there's a 50% chance that their partner is HIV uninfected. So they're a tremendously important group for prevention. And as you'll hear in some of the data I present, they've also really taught us a lot about prevention because they have been one of the populations where it's been most efficient to test new biomedical strategies. And these couples, and this is true in Africa and uh, the U.S. and elsewhere, Risk is high in these couples. They know that their partner is infected, but there's tremendous pressure to have children. Fertility desire is high, and so the risk is an ongoing one because they have to make decisions around uh, whether or not to use condoms while they're trying to, uh, try, try to meet their fertility desires. So as I tell you about some of the data that came from these serodiscordant couples in Africa, I think we need to remember really all transmissions ultimately occur from serodiscordant couples. It's just that do people recognize that their partner is infected and how easily can we actually identify them? It's perhaps easier in Africa than elsewhere. So what I'm going to try to do today is really focus on one aspect of prevention. And this is where a lot of the new and exciting data were presented at CROI, which has to do with antiretrovirals for prevention. And I'll talk both about treatment as well as oral and topically delivered uh, antiretrovirals for pre-exposure prophylaxis. 
And then for both strategies, I'll try to highlight some of the challenges in trying to go from efficacy to actual implementation. <coughs> so there's a spectrum in which you can use antiretrovirals for prevention, starting with pre-exposure prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis, and treatment. And I'll start with talking about treatment. And as you'll hear uh, from a number of different uh, sources, there are clear clinical benefits. Um, we all, I think, recognize that. But the data have accrued over the last few years that there are clear prevention benefits as well. So you might think it's kind of a no-brainer that we should just move ahead and that this will achieve a huge prevention impact. However, for each of these strategies, and I'll come back and focus on PrEP after talking about treatment, there are also challenges. And here it's scale-up, resources, adherence, not so much anymore, but in the past, long-term toxicities, and then resistance. So let's go through some of the data. We did a study in the mid-2000s of looking at whether herpes suppression could reduce transmission. And this was a large study of about 3,400 HIV serotonin couples from 14 sites in seven countries in Africa. And of the 3,400 couples, none of them were uh, on ART at the beginning, but about 10% initiated ART following national guidelines. So we asked the question, what, what number of transmissions uh, occurred during ART? And we had 103 linked transmissions, so we knew the virus came from that partner. And in these 103 transmissions, only one occurred after ART initiation. So when you do the math, the button will push, uh, what we found was a remarkable 92% reduction in transmission. So this was an observational study. We were trying to ask a question about herpes suppression, which didn't work, unfortunately. But we found in observational analyses after the study was completed that ART had a very powerful transmission benefit. And this one case of uh, transmission occurred very soon after the HIV-infected partner started ART. So they were probably in the process of suppressing their viral load. So even then, it's not really a failure of ART. It's just that the ART had not uh, fully accrued benefits. So this was published a couple of years ago. There was a lot of excitement about it, but it really was not completely um, definitive data. And that was added to ecologic data that had come initially from Julio Montagnier's work in British Columbia, where he reported declining uh, HIV number of cases as ART um, was scaled up. And people were beginning to believe that really if we could achieve high scale up, maybe on a population level, you could see it in effect. Similar data were presented in about two years ago from Doss and colleagues in San Francisco showing that as on a community level, as the viral load in these blue bars came down, the number of new cases also came down. So again, sort of consistent observational data suggesting that ART was having an impact on populations. But really the big news about a year ago was um, when uh, the HPTN052 study, which was conducted in 13 sites in nine countries, 
in Africa, India, Brazil, and the U.S., where they enrolled about almost 1,800 HIV serodiscordant couples where the HIV-infected partner had a CD4 count between 350 and 550. And they were randomized to either immediately start ART or wait until their CD4 dropped to uh, 250, and all received intensive counseling and uh, condoms and, and adherence and risk reduction counseling. And they looked both at transmission and disease progression. And you'd kind of have to have not been paying attention to not see the news that came out in which they reported a remarkable 96% transmission reduction. But first of all, just I want to remind people that of the 39 transmissions, um, 11 of them, so almost uh, 25%, occurred from outside the partnership. So these were stable, cohabiting couples. And still, a quarter of the uninfected partners became infected from a different partner. So when I talk about primary prevention, remember that treatment had a big reduction among those who became infected from their source partner, but we still need other strategies. Even in couples where you think they're monogamous and stable, partnerships change, and uh, sometimes they have multiple partners. And so we need strategies to reduce infectiousness, but also reduce susceptibility. The other point that I think really needs to be emphasized, this is really a, a, really a measure of biologic efficacy of ART, because these couples were getting very intensive virologic monitoring. Every quarter, they were having viral loads measured. And if people had detectable viral loads among those that were on ART, they would go out and do very intensive adherence counseling. So this is really an optimal situation. They had over 90% viral suppression through uh, 24 months of follow-up. So yes, ART reduces infectiousness in the context of viral suppression. So the challenge is how do we get there? So this was heralded appropriately as really the breakthrough of the year um, last year. And many people uh, started to speculate if we could really take these results and scale them and achieve this kind of success on a large scale, that you could actually um, envision the end of AIDS. And I'm not going to go through all the mathematical modeling. There's been a lot of debate about, well, how soon could we see this? What level of coverage do you need? And it's, it's high levels of coverage. So with these exciting results in mind, the challenge is, how do we get there? And the models tell us that we probably need to have 90% of all HIV-infected people on treatment to halt transmissions on a population level. And the challenge is that most HIV-infected persons currently who are identified have high CD4 counts and do not have clinical symptoms. So are they really going to want to go on treatment early? And this is something that in my practice in Seattle, I have patients who, even with all the data that I present with them and try to be persuasive in my counseling, they're not ready to start. It's a big commitment to think about lifelong treatment. So I think we really have to get very effective in messaging about the benefits of treatment, both for their own purposes, but also for prevention to overcome some of this resistance. So Wafa, Elsader, and others have coined this term, the HIV care prevention 
uh, continuum. So when you think about what we're trying to achieve, you have to start with, first of all, getting very high coverage of testing. And as um, Dr. Gulick showed you, we still have maybe 20% of uh, persons in the U.S. who do not know they're infected. So how do we really get to the harder to reach populations? We're going to have to get innovative and be really persistent. And then you have to do an incredibly high coverage of linkage. So it's not enough to just give a passive referral. We're going to have to get much better at making sure that people, once they learn they're positive, get linked into care. And then if they're either not eligible or not willing to start treatment, how do we maintain them in care? So this whole issue of pre-ART engagement in care is another area where I think we have a lot of work to do. And then if they are eligible, they have to get on treatment and they have to really, in the end, achieve viral suppression. So this is the, some people call it the cascade, others call it the continuum, but we cannot have much fall off at any of these steps if we're really going to get a population level benefit from uh, treatment. So another way of looking at this is that we have to really complete the circle. And as clinicians, I think we often uh, focus our efforts on initiation of treatment and, and adherence support. But really all these other areas are equally as important. And so we can't just sort of view it as that's public health's job. We're going to collectively have to do much more to make sure that this is a continuum and that all levels of coverage are high, which means we're going to have to tackle some really challenging issues. Our healthcare system is pretty broken, and so we're going to have to fix the leaks in uh, these different parts of the cascade in order to have really a powerful prevention impact. So Wafel Sadir published a paper a couple years ago where she broke this down in terms of the various uh, challenges where we're going to have to find ways to reach the young African-American men who have sex with men, the women that um, Dr. Gulick mentioned in the ISIS study who are not aware of their risk, are not being tested, and are hard to reach. So that we have fewer people who are presenting with late diagnosis and then also deal with some of the challenges. Why do we have such uh, challenges getting people into care and retained in care? So that ART is initiated earlier and that people really achieve viral suppression. But there are barriers at each of these steps that have to be very creatively uh, tackled. So there are challenges, obviously, with uh, treatment as prevention. But it's exciting that the data now really give us the momentum to tackle those challenges. There are also new data, and I'll share these with you, suggesting that pre-exposure prophylaxis can really work if people take it and if we get it to people who are at risk. And I'll walk you through those data and address some of the challenges. I think with PrEP, just like treatment as prevention, people have to be motivated to take the, the medications to achieve a benefit. We're going to have to find ways to deliver it and to do that in a cost-effective way. And there have been concerns about resistance, but in the end, I think that'll be a much lower, uh, smaller issue. So why would we even think about looking at pre-exposure prophylaxis? Ashley Haas and others, including your colleagues at the CDC, um, Garcia Lerma, um, have looked at this, this concept that basically, given how quickly HIV crosses a mucosa and 
and quickly infects cells and then explodes to lead to a systemic dissemination. If you've had drug on board early, you might be able to prevent transmission. And the issue, however, is that because this happens so quickly, we're talking about really by 72 hours, HIV can cross mucosa, find the founder, the founder cells get infected and then quickly disseminate into the lymph nodes. But you probably need to have drug on at the time of exposure before if it's really going to get high efficacy. So when you think about this, either in terms of delivering a drug topically at the mucosal site of exposure, vaginally or rectally, or orally, there are several principles. First of all, you need to have the right drug. So it has to be highly safe, because we're talking about delivering drugs to people who are HIV uninfected. So safety is really paramount. It has to be highly effective and lead to minimal resistance in the breakthrough infections. It's a very stubborn <laughs> thing. And it has to be at the right place. So you have to get sufficient concentrations at the site of exposure, and you have to give it at the right time. And by right time, ideally you want something that has a short onset of activity so that someone could take it hours before sex and yet have a long half-life so it would also provide some uh, protection post-exposure so that you really optimize efficacy with variable patterns of adherence. The drugs that were initially tested were all based on regimens using tenofovir. And I'll tell you about those different trials. And tenofovir was uh, chosen because it had high potency. We knew this from treatment. And fairly rapid activity, although it does have to be phosphorylated, so it's not instantaneous. It's very safe um, in most studies of uh, infected persons and very well tolerated and could be given once daily with few drug interactions. And the general concept that pre-exposure prophylaxis might work was really well established by the animal studies done at CDC, as well as um, breastfeeding infants who were getting long-term uh, prophylaxis um, after, um, after delivery. So the concept seemed to work. But I think it's important to note that we need different strategies. And so when the PrEP studies were started, there was a goal to look at both oral and topical delivery. And there were reasons for this. Oral was, um, as I mentioned, we knew from treatment, was highly safe um, and very tolerable, had high efficacy in the treatment studies. It is something under one's own control. You can take a pill um, without someone observing you. And it was available. So if it worked, um, this would be something that we could actually implement quickly. The gel um, studies were designed because the idea is where you, you might be able to really deliver the drug where the exposure occurred, usually mucosally, because 90% of transmission occurs sexually. And it might be something that would be highly acceptable. It would provide lubrication. It would be something that you could do just around the time of sex. However, if it worked, it was going to require major um, efforts to scale it up in terms of licensure and production. When I talk about PrEP, I want to highlight that I think we need to think about this as not a lifelong strategy as opposed to treatment, that there are periods of one's life when people are at higher risk. In, in parts of sub-Saharan Africa where I've worked, there are times where women have a 9% risk 
per year in, uh, in parts of south, southern Africa. For couples, it's when they're trying to, often when they're trying to conceive, when men who are having sex with men come out, that's a time of particular risk. And across populations, when people are having partnership change, when there's depression, alcohol, or drug use, these are times of higher risk when PrEP might have a role. So the vision as we embark on these trials over the last five to six years is that we would try these concepts in different populations and that it would provide pieces to the puzzle so that we could see whether PrEP would work in injection drug users, men who have sex with men, high-risk women, and serodiscordant couples. So a lot of effort has gone into this. This has been many millions of dollars to try to answer the question, does PrEP work and in what populations? But unfortunately, it's been complicated. Um, so the, the evidence is quite strong that in some populations, PrEP does work. And I'll walk through these studies. We have gel that showed about 40% efficacy in uh, South Africa. We have IPREX, which was a study among men who have sex with men that showed 44% efficacy. TDF2, a study of young heterosexuals in Botswana that showed a 62% efficacy of oral Truvada. And our study in uh, heterosexual serodiscordant couples in Africa that showed a remarkable 67 and 75% efficacy. So really exciting. There's never been anything in prevention that has this high in efficacy. But it's complicated, and this has led to some confusion and consternation, understandably, because we now have two studies that also showed futility, and I'll try to explain what I think we understand about that so far, but this is an ongoing effort. So we have oral Truvada that did not work in high-risk women in um, several countries in Africa. We have the voice trial, which is still ongoing with the Truvada arm, but both oral tenofovir and vaginal tenofovir did not work in this population of high-risk women. The Bangkok tenofovir study among injection drug users is ongoing, and we hope we'll see results soon. And there's one more study of tenofovir gel that's ongoing. So the data are mixed. Let's try to understand it. So Caprice 04 was the, really a landmark study. This was the first time after huge efforts in microbicides that we found any evidence of efficacy. They, used, they asked women to use tenofovir gel pericoidally. So women were told to use two doses within uh, 24 hours, a dose before and a dose after sex. This study enrolled about 900 women, um, and they were young women in, uh, in the Durban area. And what they found, which was met with great enthusiasm, was that tenofovir gel had 39% uh, efficacy. And I think the other thing that really caught people's attention is there was a sobering 9% risk of HIV acquisition per year in the placebo arm. So that means a young woman, the, the mean age was 23 in this population, had an almost 10% risk of becoming infected. So talk about a need for primary prevention. These were not sex workers. These were women who had an average of one partner. So risk is really high. So this was very exciting. And there was also the bonus that there was all, almost a 50% reduction in herpes acquisition. And we need herpes uh, primary prevention strategies. So it was 
applauded. There was a standing ovation about two years ago when these data were first presented. This was a breakthrough in microbicides. But they also t showed us that adherence, as we now can say very conclusively, adherence is the Achilles heel, that it, efficacy was much higher among women who used gel. About 80% or more of their sex acts were used with gel. So there was sort of a pattern here that you'll see in all these studies that if you use it, it works. And only 40, you know, and I think just going back to that for a moment, the point is that in this study of Caprisa, that there were 42% of the women who reported that they couldn't or didn't use gel 50% uh, of the time. So we have to not forget that this is, uh, sounds like a simple intervention to use gel around sex, but it's not so easy uh, in some situations. Then the second study that uh, was also met with a lot of excitement was the IPREX study, where they enrolled almost 2,500 men who have sex with men from 11 sites. And it's important to note that two-thirds of these men were enrolled from uh, Ecuador and Peru, so from the Andes, and only about um, less than 300 were from U.S. sites. So these were young men, and I think, again, what's really remarkable, talk about risk, the median number of partners in the prior three months was 18. These were highly sexually active young men um, from diverse sites. And IPREX showed 42% efficacy in their final analysis. And again, they showed when they looked at their recorded adherence, broken down here into those who by pill count um, had 90% or higher adherence, they had a 68% efficacy. But notably, the majority of people, majority of men were in these lower uh, adherence populations and efficacy was much lower. So then, what about women? What about oral PrEP in women? And there's been a lot of effort to look at this because we recognize that, particularly in Africa, the HIV epidemic is becoming more and more um, prevalent epi epidemic among women. So what are we going to do about it? And we'll come to these studies and try to, dis uh, try to really understand what was happening in these trials. So the first study, which I'll mention, is the Partners PrEP study, which was almost 4,800 HIV serodiscordant couples, nine sites, and two of these in Mbali and Toro in Uganda were sites that CDC uh, worked with. And half of these sites were brand new to research. This was a tremendous undertaking. In this study, the HIV-positive partners were not yet eligible for treatment and enrollment. The HIV-negative partners had normal liver, renal, hematologic function, were not pregnant or breastfeeding, and they were randomized to either tenofovir once daily, FTC tenofovir or Truvada once daily, and placebo. All received condoms and counseling, and they were followed for either uh, between 24 to 36 months. And really, as with all these studies, we were looking both at safety and efficacy as our primary outcomes. Remarkably, because many people said, well, serial discordant couples won't stay together, but in fact, there was 95% retention um, in these couples. So they were incredibly motivated to be in a prevention study. Last July, we were thrilled because about a year and a half before we expected it, the Data Safety Monitoring Board told us to stop the placebo arm because we had met our, our predefined 
uh, efficacy. And we found 75% efficacy in the Truvada arm, 67% in the Tenofovir arm, and note the 95% confidence bounds. The lower bounds were 44 and 55%. So we really ruled out low efficacy. These were highly efficacious in this population. And we looked at gender, um, and we found that tenofovir worked both for women and men, highly significant, and there was no uh, significant interaction um, by gender within tenofovir. And also to the Truvada arm had very high efficacy for both women and men, and again, no uh, significant interaction. So it worked for both men and women in the Partners PrEP study. So we found that it had very high efficacy. Nothing has had this kind of efficacy in any um, biomedical prevention study to date. 67 and 75% protection. There was um, really no safety signals of concern. The only resistance of note that we saw were in the uh, handful. There were eight people who had seronegative acute infection at uh, enrollment, and two of those individuals had uh, resistance mutations, one K65R associated with tenofovir and one M184V. But none of the people who acquired HIV after starting PrEP uh, had resistance, and we found no evidence of behavioral risk compensation. When we do these studies, we save samples and we go back and we can go back and look at drug levels. And what both IPREX and Partners PrEP did is look at the amount of drug present at seroconversion and found, not surprisingly, that the people who broke through infection had low levels, a low proportion of them had drug compared to the levels in the non-seroconverters. And I think there are a couple things to note here, that in IPREX, only about 52% of the men who were sampled in this um, drug level case cohort or case control study had drug. So adherence was an issue in IPREX among the men who have sex with men. Whereas we had almost 82% of the um, people who didn't become, become infected had drug in the partner's PrEP study and a lower proportion, obviously, in the seroconverters. So if you really want to look at biologic efficacy among those who had drug present, there was almost about a 90% efficacy in these case uh, control studies. So if you take it, it works, and it works very well. But it, the picture of PrEP efficacy needs to be completed by understanding the other studies. And the CDC did an important study in uh, young heterosexual men and women, because a lot of people thought, well, young people are going to have a higher, harder time with adherence. They had a smaller number of infections. They had 33. But again, it worked, 63% efficacy. So I think that this supports the idea that PrEP does work, even in a younger population. But then the picture gets more complicated. The FIMPRIP study um, enrolled young women um, from three countries in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And these were women who were, by and large, less than um, 25 years of age. As some people describe FIMPREP as a, a study among sex workers, but actually only about 13% reported transactional sex. Condom use was not very high. Sex was frequent. And STIs were frequent. The sobering news is that at enrollment, only 70% of the women reported that they um, 
excuse me, put it the other way around, 30% of women perceived themselves to be at risk. So even though STI rates were high, uh, they were not using condoms, and they had frequent sex, 70% reported they were at low or no risk of HIV. So that's a sobering uh, finding from this study. And what they found is basically equivalent uh, HIV rates in the active uh, arm, Truvada versus placebo. And so they found it was stopped early because of futility. They did um, find a couple of uh, cases of primary resistance with M184B. So this is the, of the completed studies, it ranges from 6% efficacy in Truvada to um, 75% uh, for serodiscordant couples. So maybe the population makes a difference or what are the other factors? And I think what's emerging is it's adherence. And if you take the efficacy rates for FemPrep, IPREPs, and partners, ranging from 6% to 75%, the drug level studies among non-seroconverters showed that adherence was really an issue. And if you looked at consistent adherence in FemPrep, where people had drug levels on two occasions, it was 26%. So there seems to be a clear pattern between adherence and efficacy. Then lastly, there's the voice trial, and unfortunately, they've had uh, two arms stop, the tenofovir gel and the t oral tenofovir, and uh, the Truvada arm is ongoing. So they've found no, the DSMB has found, reported no safety concerns. We're waiting for the oral Truvada uh, data from voice, but it's really perplexed people why uh, this study, which looked at gel um, daily found no efficacy, whereas um, the Capriso 4 found some efficacy. So is it adherence? Um, clearly that's an important part of it, but maybe that's not the whole um, explanation because some of our PrEP seroconverters have used the medication, so we still need to understand uh, why some people break through PrEP without, um, when they have drug on board. So I think with PrEP we can say that we clearly have much left to learn. We need to understand, did the VOICE study, which found no efficacy with daily gel, not work, whereas Capriso 4 with pericoidal gel did work? Is it because there were differences, that there was more STIs, more inflammation, higher rates of acute infection? Um, is there a threshold effect? Is there toxicity with daily use of uh, tenofovir gel? What is the minimum blood tissue concentration? And I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of important work that is being done in terms of pharmacokinetics, which will help us understand tenofovir-based PrEP, but also guide our choice of next PrEPs agents. Also with behavior, I think that we clearly have to understand behavior and what the relationship is between risk perception and adherence. If you don't perceive yourself at risk, why would you do something daily or, or associated with sex? And the fact that in FemPrep, 70% of women perceive themselves to be at low or no risk is really sobering in a population of women that have 5% risk. How can that be? How can we help uh, women better perceive their risk and be motivated to use prevention? So where is PrEP heading? You know, we've focused now on pills and gels. There's work about 
making um, agents on a film that could be dissolved in the vagina or the rectum. There are studies that are starting uh, using vaginal rings with depivirine, so we're moving away from tenofovir and testing new products. Um, Maraviroc will be tested in a study that Dr. Gulick is, um, is conducting. And there's a study that is um, just now been reported at uh, CROI that shows that real pivoting, a long-acting um, in an RTI, has uh, safety and, and very favorable PK uh, aspects. So maybe we could in the future envision a shot once a month or ideally even less frequent so that people would uh, be able to use something less frequently and we'd get away from some of the adherence challenges. So ideally, where do we want to be with PrEP? We want something long-acting, low-cost, user-friendly that is maximizing choice and optimizing effectiveness. We want combination approaches, ideally for women, combinations of antiretroviral drugs that um, can be combined with contraception, like either Depo-Provera or NuvaRing. And we recognize that this is really the first step in a long road to developing better products that tenofovir oral or gel is not the, BN, the end of PrEP, that it's really the beginning and we have to continue to optimize our approaches. So just to end in terms of where are we heading with HIV prevention, I think what we can say for, for both PrEP and ART for treatment is that access and adherence are going to be key factors and that they're probably the most important factors in terms of uh, determining population impact and the number of infections that can be averted. So that we have to really tackle some of these challenging systems issues and figure out how do we get products to the people who need it and help them actually take these products. With um, oral Truvada, um, part of the process will be getting regulatory approval and a for those who aren't aware, FDA will be reviewing the data from Partners PrEP and IPREX and the other PrEP studies on May 10th to determine whether or not there should be a uh, label change to include um, prevention in the label for Truvada. And I think this is important because to actually be able to implement PrEP, it will be helpful to have FDA approval, um, and that's true for not just the U.S., but outside the U.S. But I also think we have to be realistic that just finding things that work is the beginning of a long pathway. And many people heralded the male circumcision uh, efficacy trials as being like a, a surgical vaccine. But we've seen over the last four years how hard it is to go from efficacy to actually implementing this on a large scale. So we have a lot of work ahead of for ourselves. What about ART and PrEP for prevention in couples? I started the talk with talking about serodiscordant couples. And I think that some of the modeling work we've done with Tim Hallett suggests that now that we have a, a clear estimate of efficacy, that we can start thinking about when would PrEP make sense versus ART. And part of it will do, depend on the cost as well as the risk profile of the couples. And if you have low-risk couples, as we were uh, had in the studies, partly because we gave intensive counseling, there may be a relatively narrow sliver uh, where PrEP would make sense before ART. But if you get riskier couples, there's a bigger proportion 
of the time until people hit a, a CD4 of 350 or 500, depending on national guidelines, where PrEP might make a sense as a bridge to ART. So the demonstration projects that are about to be started in uh, Africa will be to recruit higher-risk couples using a uh, serodiscordant couples using a risk score, offer ART following national guidelines, and then for the couples where the HIV-infected partner is not yet eligible for ART, offer PrEP to their negative partner and then have a close follow-up to the infected partner so they can start ART when they're eligible. Some infected partners will refuse ART. They should be offered PrEP. And for those who, when they do start ART, there may be a period of about six months where it would be useful to use PrEP as well. So there's probably a systematic way to, uh, to roll out PrEP as a bridge to ART in couples. But lastly, I've focused on ARV-based prevention. But let's remember that none of these strategies have 100% efficacy. So that really when we talk about combination HIV prevention, it has to be part of a package. So in parts of the world, male circumcision is a very effective strategy and a relatively relatively simple intervention that will reduce uh, risk of um, female-to-male transmission. Condoms are important, and we can't let up on promoting condoms. Our data suggests 80% efficacy of condoms, male condoms, in heterosexual couples, so we have to continue to encourage condoms. Counseling and testing are particularly uh, important, and treatment STIs, I think, particularly in HIV-infected persons. So we have to use the evidence that we have to put together packages for different populations and deliver them at high scale in order to have a, a real impact. And I'd like to end with this quote 300 years ago from Samuel Johnson that although I've highlighted some of the not just opportunities but challenges, that we have to really tackle these challenges, that both for scaling up treatment, which is prevention, as well as um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, that we have to tackle the challenges so that we can actually um, move from being pessimistic about uh, all the challenges to optimistic and really achieve the potential of ARV-based prevention. So thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. That was a wonderful review um, and very current. Let me just kind of start, as Jeff comes up, uh, with the big question that we all face every day. And based on the data you presented in the, the HPT and 052, you have a discordant couple. They're in a monogamous relationship, as far as you can tell. <clears throat> One partner is positive. It's been on ARV therapy for years and undetectable for years. Uh, the other partner is negative, seronegative. What do you tell them? So I, um, I would say that their risk of uh, transmission is much lower. I do, I do not tell people that there's zero risk because I didn't show up, but in um, our partner's herpes study, we looked at transmission risk by viral load, and there were about 11 transmissions out of um, 150 total where the viral load was less than 1,000. So I, I think we need to be encouraging that this is 
their risk is much lower, but I, right. I do not like to quote, uh, and even HPT-052 yes, does so, not have zero risk. So what do you think of this? I mean, I'll just tell you what I do and just to clear my conscience a little bit. Um, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people do this as well. That's why I'm mentioning it. But um, I will say, look, I can't tell you your risk is, is zero. There are no data to support that. But the risk is very, very low, and it's really up to you to decide how you want to manage that. And as long as you understand that there is some risk, if you choose to be unprotected, just understand the risk is not zero, but the choice is yours. Is that fair? That's, that's fair. I think that it depends on the couple. And if, yeah, if they're really saying does. that they're monogamous, I think you, you, right. know, you have to right. go with the and, and, I, and I noticed in your last slide when you talked about the future, the, the study, if I read it properly, the one in Africa, um, the PrEP bridge to therapy I assume PrEP stops once the seropositive partner goes on. So the study is kind of assuming that the risk is close to zero. Right. So what the demonstration project will ask is during that period where the infected partner is achieving viral suppression, right. will continue PrEP and then stop. Which is where that one transmission occurred in 052, right? Was right. During that exactly. decay period. Okay. We have a lot of questions. Um, two of them were related. Given the data that you presented, what is your feeling or recommendation for serodiscordant couples where the partner is completely suppressed? Is it okay for them to have unprotected sex, and is it okay for them to conceive? I, you know, I think it's uh, if they're monogamous and they understand the data and they're, um, you know, people res respond to. Um, risk in different ways, but I, I think all you can do is provide the data and help them feel okay with the decision they make. I, I think that sometimes we, we, being conservative, make people really uncomfortable with the fact that we can't say it's zero, but I think if they hear the data and, and realize that it's, it's very low and they want to not use condoms, particularly if they're trying to conceive, I think that's, that's a reasonable decision. Two related questions on the vaginal gel. One, how is the tolerability, particularly burning and irritation, and can you explain why HSV was less common? So the first, in terms of uh, tolerability, it was actually quite good. In fact, a number of the sites reported that when the Capriso 4 study ended, that women wanted to continue the gel. So um, it actually, potentially because it was lubricating, women liked it. Um, you know, I, I think there are many speculations about the daily use of gel in, vo in the voice trial that maybe that was too much, maybe there's leakage and that it's not burning, but just it's not easy for women in the audience who've used gels. You know that uh, that's an issue. So um, it's, not, it's not uncomfortable, but I think the issue is, you know, is, was daily asking too much. Um, and so we eagerly await the data from voice over the next year. The herpes protection uh, impact was, I didn't dwell on that, but first of all, you should know in the placebo arm, there's a 20% risk of herpes acquisition. So this was a young population where herpes um, was twice as common in or twice as frequent in terms of the uh, comparing the HIV and the herpes acquisition rate. So initially people were surprised because they had looked at tenofovir in terms of activity against herpes and with oral dosing, you don't get high enough levels to really suppress herpes. But the levels achieved topically were so high that um, subsequent in vitro studies have shown that it's plausible that those high levels of uh, tenofovir 
could uh, have effective levels against turkeys? Two questions um, around the feasibility of launching this in the U.S. Since HIV is emerging in a lower socioeconomic population who are poorly insured, how can we afford it? How can it be implemented? And then how can we prevent toxicity if we're going to broadly use tenofovir or Truvada? Yeah, excellent, excellent questions. And those are, are really the challenges. I think when you think about, um, when you talk about PrEP in the near future in the U.S., we're talking about oral PrEP, so Truvada. <clears throat> and to the kinds of participants who are in studies are incredibly adherent. They're um, not the population necessarily that are at the highest risk in the U.S. So demonstration projects are going to be trying to really tackle those issues. Can you find the young men who are at highest risk are often the high, hardest to reach? So the demonstration projects will be key to help us understand how do you target people? Will they take it? You know, I think the data, which I didn't show from the um, PrEP study, suggests that people either take it or they don't. And so there may be a small group of people who intermittently use it episodically or um, around periods of higher risk behavior, and we're going to have to really understand how people use it, even if we counsel them to use it daily. So there are um, a number of studies, demonstration projects that are starting in cities that have a um, high uh, proportion of their new cases among minority men, and those are going to be key to informing how to actually roll it out. And lastly, I think cost is a big issue, I, um, especially in the situation where, like in our STD clinic, a majority of the men who come in with early syphilis are uninsured. So how are we actually going to deliver it? So these are not trivial questions. I don't want right. to gloss over them. Andy? Very, Andy Vernon, CDC. Very interesting presentation. Thank you. The question I have has to do with the comment you made about 11 out of 150 transmissions occurring in, occurring in persons with viral loads under 50. Did I hear that right, no. or am I mistaken? No. I, I, if you could clarify sure. that, and were these individuals who were on ART? Yeah. No, I, the comment was um, out of the partners and prevention herpes HIV transmission studies, so that very first slide yeah. where I showed the yeah. observational data. If you took all transmissions um, and we broke it down by viral load and uh, risk of transmission, at the very low end, uh, less than 2,000, we had a, a, about 11 transmissions that occurred, and these were linked transmissions. So the risk was much lower than at higher viral loads, but it's not zero. And these were individuals on ART? No, this was so a small, so that's why we did the subsequent study that I showed you mm -hmm. to say if you really look at the role of ART, that's where we found the 92% reduction. So, but in the absence of ART, there can be some transmissions at low viral loads. And not to mention the variability of the test. In, 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 thank you. Um, just one quick final one. We're, we're really out of time, so very quick question and answer. Um, about the use of um, uh, treatment as prevention for MSM, because the data didn't necessarily address that. And then uh, how does that, what about the risk for a, a heterosexual male in general? Because we talked about women. Um, just real quickly, what, what, your, what are your thoughts? So there, HP2052, 
as some uh, probably noted, 97% of the couples were uh, heterosexual. So the data really are, I think, powerful in terms of showing that uh, treatment works in heterosexual couples. It was really hard to recruit uh, gay male uh, discordant couples. I think Boston had uh, a few and the rest were from Brazil. So WHO had a consultation to say, do these uh, data really inform us about MSM? Do we need to do another trial? I think personally it's very unlikely that we'll have that trial. So uh, biologically, I think there's no reason to suspect um, that the results would be different because we get the same sort of viral suppression in, uh, in the with treatment in different uh, genital compartments. So I personally am very comfortable extrapolating from HPT-052 to MSM couples. Great. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Kellum. Thank you.